Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. Beginning in verse 16 of Luke chapter 8. God's word says, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. And at the outset, I need to issue a warning to everyone. In a few moments, I'm going to place on the overhead screens an image that some in the room I know are not prepared to see. Responses to this image may include uh, demonstrations of anger, maybe even soliciting tears. Parents, if you feel the need, you might want to shield or avert your children's eyes from what others may demonstrate. Take this next moment to do what you need to do. This is the image. That horrendous image is the popular form of transportable data storage the last time my Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl. As I was scrolling through the countless reactions that football fans had to the Cowboys' shocking loss last Sunday, I came across this photo, and it really stung. If you can't make out what the label says, it says Cowboys Super Bowl Pictures. I showed it to my wife, Yvette, hoping that I would get some sort of sympathy from my wife, and I didn't. Um, I got the same eye roll that I did a few weeks ago after the Cowboys got the second seed in the NFC, and I was thinking, man, at least San Francisco in the NFC Championship. No. Then she gets a little grin on her face, and she suggested that I show this thing to people at least half my age to ask them if they even know what that is. So I polled six young people. They were aged 20, 16, 13, 12, 10, and 9. Do you know how many of those six young people knew that this was a three and a half inch floppy disk that had a maximum capacity of 1.44 megabytes? Not a one. Do you know how many of them even had an idea that this is something that you used to be able to plug into a computer? Not a one. Things change, don't they? I'm not sure that you can even buy any sort of computing device that has the ability to even receive a disk any longer. I mean, if you're lucky, lucky you'll find one that has the, the latest technology for USB, but really everything's gone to the cloud, and that's where everything's stored, right? We've found ourselves in a place where we have no idea, depending on how old we are, what this thing is, because we're not really concerned with the vocabulary of technology, are we? We just care that the stuff we buy is, frankly, the latest and the greatest and that it actually works. But you know, a vocabulary of technology isn't the only thing that we lack these days. It may not be a surprise to you that, by and large, we also lack a vocabulary of faith. 
Now, this is true for our children, for sure, but it's also alarmingly true for many adults this morning across this nation. I'll tell you about a pastor from South Carolina who recently shared an incident that comes from a counseling session that he held with a, a set of parents that visited him. They came to his office, and they brought with them a list of their teenagers' faith-based questions that they were just hoping the pastor could help them answer. And at the top of the list of these faith-based questions that the parents themselves of this teenager could not answer was this. What is that guy doing up there hanging on a plus sign? What is that guy doing hanging on a plus sign? How is it that we in this nation could arrive at a place where Jesus is just a guy hanging on a plus sign? How does that come to be? I'm going to put over a head for you, and I'll explain it in a minute because I know you may not be able to see it, but this is an image of uh, the results of a survey that's conducted annually by a group called the American Bible Society that has conducted a poll over these last 13 years about how Americans engage with the Bible. The survey asks of respondents this question. Aside from attending services at your church, do you use the Bible three times or more in a year? Do you use the Bible three times or more in a year? Let me be clear. This isn't asking if you read something from the Bible every day. This isn't asking how well you're doing on your Bible in a year reading plan. This is asking, do you even bother to crack open the word that God has given to reveal himself to you three times in a year? You know what percentage of Americans used the Bible three times in a year last year? For the last couple of years? You can see the blue line. That's the average, right? 50% for the first 10 or so years. Last two years? 39% of Americans were trending in the wrong direction. And I don't know about you, but this is alarming stuff for, for a pastor. It's alarming because God has given us the Bible so that we can know him personally. I mean, there's aspects about God that will remain a mystery until we enter into eternity. But what God has seen fit that we should know about him, he's given to us in the Bible. And yet, if we're not spending time with the Lord and His Word, then we are like what the Bible describes as people who are just tossed around by the waves of the ocean. We are getting carried every which way that the wind may blow because, frankly, we will hear something that sounds really nice, something that sounds compelling, something that sounds crafty, but it's nonetheless deceiving. I will remind you that last week we saw Jesus teach us from the parable of the sower. And it's in that parable that Jesus taught us that as the word of God is preached, as the word of God is taught, the word will fall upon the hearts of men and women as as a farmer's seed does fall upon the soil. And that soil is either ready to receive and multiply the seed that that falls upon it, or that, that soil is not ready to receive it at all. When the word of God is truly received by a teachable heart, then there's fruit that comes from that which multiplies the seed to many more. And this morning we can see that Jesus is still on the same subject. He's still concerned with the word of God. Jesus is concerned about whether the Bible is central to the life of those who say with their lips that they love God. And so at our outset, I want to ask you to consider the following question this morning. 
This is where we're headed and what you'll have to answer for yourselves. What place does the Word of God have in your life? What place does it have in your life? And as we work through today's message, you'll find that there are three things that Jesus is telling us about the Word of God. Three things that Jesus says that God has intended for the Bible to accomplish in the lives of men and women and boys and girls like you and me. And the first thing that we can see from our text is that Jesus was had it, would have us know that God's Word illuminates. It illuminates. And as we begin to understand how God's Word illuminates, I want to first clarify what the Holy Spirit led Luke to record here in this text in contrast to what the Holy Spirit led other gospel writers to record, and that being namely Matthew. Now, I would never want to be understood as discouraging anyone from the study of their Bible. I would never want to be understood as discouraging anybody from going about to find how often the Bible cross-references and how often the Bible explains itself. In what Luke has recorded as a teaching from Jesus, we see that this teaching involves the, the imagery of the light and the imagery of a lampstand. And you'll also find that Matthew has also recorded a teaching from Jesus that uses a similar set of imagery. You'll find this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, which is, comes at the beginning of what you and I know popularly. It's the Sermon on the Mount. That's the, ser- the greatest sermon ever preached. And from what Jesus is communicating in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls all those who are his disciples to function as light in that teaching. They're not to hide God's word from God's people, but anyone who calls himself a disciple of Jesus is to preach, is to teach, is to live the word of God out clearly. And to encourage, and, and, and to encourage this, Jesus tells us there in Matthew that we are to let our, let our light shine before others. I know you've heard that before. Let your light shine. It's on coffee mugs and t-shirts everywhere, right? But we would be wrong to conclude that because we see Jesus using the lampstand illustration here in verse 16, that Jesus must be using the illustration to bring the same application. If I can let you in on a little secret about preaching, when you find a really good illustration, you milk the thing for all it's worth, okay? And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is the greatest preacher of the Word. He's the Word Himself. So what we have here is Jesus using the lamp on the lampstand illustration in a different setting. And so it requires you and I to be good readers. It requires you and I to interpret what Jesus is teaching within the context of the passage that the Holy Spirit has led Luke to record. And what we have here in verse 16 is Jesus clarifying what he, what he taught, began to introduce back in verse 10. I have it overhead if you don't have your Bible still open, but I'll read it for you. In verse 10, you see, Jesus said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Jesus is doing this so that all his disciples do not mistake this point. Jesus' teaching is the light that has been put on the lampstand. Let's say that again. Jesus' teaching is the light that has been put on the lampstand. His words are not given for the primary purpose of concealing God's truth. 
When Jesus teaches, the purpose of his teachings is to reveal God's truth. But the same light that reveals truth, it also exposes sin. And because of this twofold function of the light of God's truth, no one gets to respond neutrally to Jesus' teaching. Either we respond in obedience and we draw closer to the Lord when we come under the teaching of the Word of God, or we try to ignore it, we deceive ourselves, and ultimately what we do is we reject the teaching of God. You don't get to just stay complacent. You accept it or you reject it. And what we think we have when we're on the side of those who have ignored it, deceived ourselves, and rejected it, what we think we have will one day be taken from us. Now let's consider what Jesus is saying in verse 16 and how it applies to us. The lamp in this day was a small clay pitcher that had a spout. It would have been a pitcher filled with oil and it had a wick in it. Obviously, when someone lights a a lamp in this condition, you don't do it for the purpose of putting it under a container. You don't light a lamp to put it under a bed to conceal it. It was lit so that it could be set on a stand and light up a house. In other words, the lamp had a very practical function. Without it, a person would, would, for example, bang his shins against any of the low-lying furniture. A person would trip over the kids' toys that were scattered all over the floor. He wouldn't be able to cook or be able to read or be able to see to do anything. The lamp was lit to be used, not hidden. And in the same way, God has given us the Bible, including the teachings of Jesus, to shed light on how we should live so that we don't grope around in the darkness as if we're blind. Going about, whacking our shins on the obstacles that the Word warns us about. Here's an example. I'm teaching out at the youth right now, and I know spending time with teenagers, many of them are very concerned with what the will of God is for their lives. They're asking questions like, whom should I marry? They're asking questions like, where should I go to school? What should I do with my life? Some of us who are a little more mature remember asking those questions ourselves. And we know that as we've continued on and the the years have come by, we know that we are presented with new challenges. We're presented with new opportunities. And we seek to understand God's, uh, God's will for us for as many days as we have on this earth. And what we find in the Word of God is revealed principles on each of these crucial questions. So that as you and I walk along this path of life, whether we're young or not young today, that we don't whack our shins on the wrong ways of the world. I mean, if we were to just address those hypothetical questions that we seek God's will over, if you were to turn and, and actually study the Word of God, you'd see clearly that God's will that you should... God wills that you should marry only a spiritually-minded, God-centered Christian of the opposite gender because the Word commands us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You'd find that God's will is that we should spend our lives serving the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what we're called to do in terms of how we earn a living because we are to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. By the way, you'd also find that God's will for you is not to be happy. No, but God's will is to make you holy. How do we know this? Because among all the things that God endows to you when you come to faith, He gives you His own Spirit. 
And the purpose of giving you that spirit is multifaceted. But one thing that the spirit accomplishes in your life is that the spirit of God will make you more holy and he will make you more morally pure. By the way, the $10 theological word to that is called sanctification. You might hear it from now now and again. And there are many other vital principles for right living that are revealed to us in God's word of truth. Let me tell you about this in a different way just so we can kind of picture this stuff. But something about me and my family that you may or may not know is that we love to tent camp. And I know that's not for everyone. And you may, you may know that when you tent camp, you don't have all the perks of like a furnace when it's cold or central air when it's warm. And so some people will call tent camping roughing it. But we don't, my family doesn't see it like that. You see, if you ever camped with us, you would know that we're sort of in the middle on this stuff. We, we, Camp in places that you get to just drive right up to your campsite. You'll find that there's usually a firebox where you get to do all your cooking and your marshmallow roasting. There's even picnic tables for you to serve your meals from. And most of the places we say they have public restrooms within a reasonable walking distance. But it's far from the comforts of home. When you show up, you got to build your house. When you're leaving, you got to tear the thing down, right? Not as comfortable as home. Well, it was a couple of springs ago that we went uh, camping out in West Texas in a place called the Davis Mountains. If you've never been out there, it is beautiful scenery. You need to go see it. West Texas is home to many different creatures, and one of them that introduced themselves to us on that trip is what I call the opportunistic javelina. These are generally nocturnal creatures, and the first night that we're there, they raided our camp. We were first alerted to their presence in our camp whenever they started awakening us with our backs to our tent wall as they were kind of sniffing and snorting and snooting and poking us in the back. That's a wonderful way to wake up, right? God's creatures, like, almost tearing down your wall. Then when morning came, we found that they hit the only ice chest that we had in the entire camp that didn't have, like, the lock ties on it, right? And it was in that ice chest that, I don't think I did it, but someone that we were camping with left my bacon that I was going to cook for breakfast that morning in. Avelinas took my bacon. You can disturb my sleep and I can kind of get over that. You steal my bacon and I'm coming for you. So the next night I was ready. I had decided I was going to run these Avelinas off when they came to raid us again, and sure they did. They came right in the dead of night, and I heard them, and I sprung up, and I burst through the tent door, and I tried to give them chase. I was going to catch one and make an example of them. And I made it all the way to the first guy line off my tent, or the rope that kind of gives attention, and I tripped, and I fell. Boy, did I show them with that thunderous sound of my body hitting the ground, right? Why do I tell you that? Here's the thing. Without God's word, people are wandering in this dark and dangerous world without illumination from God. They're falling into the open holes of things like drug use and sexual immorality or anger or bitterness or self-centeredness or greed and a host of other sin. God's word is the light that tells you and I how to walk so you and I don't destroy ourselves with sin. And as believers, as followers of Christ, we must live in the light of God's word ourselves. Then by our example, then by our words, we have to see others, or see that others come to see God's ways too. 
sometimes, frankly, sometimes we struggle. We wonder, why, would, why doesn't everyone want God's light to illumine their lives? Why doesn't everyone want this salvation? Why doesn't everyone want to come to know the wisdom that God has so that they might avoid the holes and dangers of the dark? Jesus gives explanation to this in John chapter 3. You find this in verses 19 and 20. I'll share them with you. Jesus explains, People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And this shows us something else about the Word of God. That it exposes It exposes. See, we're all inclined to hide from the light rather than to allow it to expose the foulness of our hearts. Nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. Let me make that clear. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is hidden from the eye of God. Nothing will remain secret that will not be made known. So we're clear. Everything hidden that will become visible, secrets will become known. Years ago, just helping you picture this, there was a wealthy uh, Chinese businessman who visited England. And the man was fascinated by, a. this is at the time that the microscope had been invented, so he's in, in, just fascinated by the powerful microscope. He's fascinated by all the wonders that the things uncovered. So he buys a microscope in England and he takes it back to his home in China. And the man thoroughly enjoyed using it up until one day when he decided, you know, I'm going to take a grain of rice that I'm going to cook for supper and put it under the microscope to see what I see. To his shock, he saw tiny creatures crawling all over that grain of rice. Chinese man didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do because rice is like the staple of his diet. And so in frustration, he smashed smashed the the microscope into bits. It had revealed something distasteful to him, so he destroyed the source of the discovery. And you think, well, that's foolish. Why would you do that? Why would you eat the rice, right? But how many people do the same thing with the Bible? Shut the thing up. I don't want to read that anymore. How many people do the same thing with the sermons that come from Bibles, from, from, from Scripture? that exposed their sin. Oh, that, that pastor just isn't feeding me. Oh, there, there's something wrong with that church. I'm not going there again. They don't feel comfortable with what they see. So rather than responding to addressing what makes them uncomfortable, they get rid of the source rather than deal with the sin. See, sadly, it's also a reality today that many of our so-called celebrity pastors deny the purpose, this purpose of God's word to expose sin for the sake of building followings. Messages they preach will often minimize or soften or even ignore the parts of the Bible that some might consider as unsavory. You need to know that God's word corrects every false worldview, every way that you try to seek to see the world. If it is false, the word of God will correct it. It will expose it. And it's going to expose every false teacher that there is. And we approach the Bible ready to receive what God has revealed to us as God seeks to make us more holy. You may not always understand every part of the Bible, but trust Him with what you do understand. 
See, God's spirit has made it known to you so that you can understand, so that you're confronted by your sin, so that you grow in your love and your affection for Jesus and his cross. And so that you would seek to remove the presence of that sin from your life. That's the purpose. But not each of us approach that this way. And that's why I appreciate the honesty of a quote that comes from the author Mark Twain. He said this, Most people are bothered by those passages in Scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I always notice that the passages in Scripture which trouble me most are those which I do understand. In other words, it's easy to get hung up on what you don't understand in the Bible so that you can distract yourself from what you do understand and what God is calling you to change in your life. And as discomforting as that might be, you got to know that God's word is like a medicine that will not do you any good unless it is applied. And that's what Jesus exhorts you and I to do in verse 18, where we find of the third thing that God's word does, that it enlightens. It enlightens. Reminding you of verse 18, Jesus says, Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has more, the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Now there's two things that I want us to see from this verse. The first thing that I want us to see from this verse is this. If we listen carefully, we will be given more light. If we listen carefully, we will be given more light. Now, listening carefully to God's word involves several elements, the first of which is this. Listening carefully means taking the time to read the word and to meditate upon its meaning. Read the word, think about the word and what it means. Even among those who attend church regularly, so many are simply ignorant of what the Bible says because they don't take time to consistently read it and to think about what it means. I know we all say we live busy lives, that we hold busy schedules, and so when we're actually of the three times in the year that we supposedly open the Bible, we rush through those times, don't we? if we even have them at all. We don't take time to chew on what the text means. We don't take time to consider how, we, how God would have us apply it to our lives, do we? A few years ago, there was a man in his 80s who was named Carl Sharsmith, and he, Carl Sharsmith had spent 50 summers as a guide at Yosemite National Park out west. And this man was delighted by the spectacular beauty of Yosemite. And he was, every summer he went over those 50, he discovered some new facet of it to revel in. But Sharsmith often got hit with a question that, uh, that was the same that a lady posed to him one afternoon. She, she posed the question this way. She said, you know, I've only got one hour to spend at Yosemite. What should I do? Where should I go? And Sharsmith, when he finally found his voice, he said, you know, man, only an hour? I suppose that if I only had an hour to spend at Yosemite, I'd go over there to that river, I'd sit down, and I'd cry. And just as there is enough at Yosemite to spend a lifetime of summers exploring, so is there enough in the Bible to spend your lifetime digging out and meditating upon. And if we don't understand it, we go and ask God to open our minds to its meaning. We go back and we spend more time observing what it says, observing what it doesn't say. We read the context over and over so that we might understand the flow of the thought that the Spirit of the living God is teaching us. 
And then we take the time often to spend with the Lord and His Word. Second, listening carefully means always looking for Jesus Christ in the Word. I'd have you know that Jesus chastised the Jews by saying in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. With the two men on the Emmaus Road, Jesus taught beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them all the Scriptures and the things concerning himself. Whether we're in the Old Testament or or in the New Testament, we ought to draw closer to the Lord Jesus Christ if we're listening carefully to what God has revealed. I very much appreciate this quote speaking about the presence of Christ in all the canon, all the Bible. It says, we find Christ in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he's predicted. In the Gospels, he's revealed. In the Acts, he's preached. In the epistles, he's explained. And in the Revelation, he's expected. And for the sake of time, I only mention a third way to listen to God's word carefully, and it's this. Listening carefully means always seeking to apply the word to my own heart and life. There's two questions that the Apostle Paul asked the Lord on that Damascus road when Paul finally met the risen Lord Jesus. And they are good questions for you and I to ask when we read the word or we listen to it being preached. If you don't remember those two questions, these are them. Paul asked Jesus, Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Then he also asked him, What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? And these two questions are linked, by the way. They're linked in this way. If Jesus is, in fact, the risen Lord and Savior who gave himself for my sins, then it has a great deal of bearing on how I must live. I'll say that again. If Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead, having died for my sin, then it has everything to do in how I live for him. To read the word without applying it, it doesn't do any of us any good. The word was not given just to fill our heads with interesting facts, but to change our hearts so that as we live, we live and operate, eat, sleep, and breathe more like Jesus himself. And I'll tell you, I've met Christians who can tell you the the tense of Greek verbs in the New Testament, who will argue the most subtle nuance of some, some theological points. But at home, Toward their families, they're angry and insensitive. Yet the whole point of Scripture is summed up in the two great commandments. The whole point of Scripture is to teach us how to love God. To teach us how to love one another. And if we are not doing that, we're missing the whole point of why we're here. Why we open the Bible. And if we listen carefully to God's Word, He'll give us more light so that we can grow more. But, but, if we only listen superficially, what we think we have will be taken away. Are you listening? We'll find later in this book, as we continue along in Luke, that Jesus' warning in this verse most certainly applied to the Pharisees. They thought they knew the Scriptures. But they missed the fact that the Messiah of of whom the Scriptures foretold was right in front of them. 
See, God judged them by taking away their temple. God judged them by taking away their land in the great destruction under Titus in the year A.D. 70. This warning also applied to Judas, who superficially listened to Jesus' teaching. But the teaching was never applied to his own heart. By the way, the Pharisees and Judas, these were not people who were like atheists or something like that. They seemed to be zealous for the things of God. Judas is one of the twelve. Yet both the Pharisees and Judas were deceived. They thought they knew God, but they didn't know Him at all because the Word of God was not applied to their hearts. Because of that, in the end, they lost everything. And because there's this element of self-deception, you and I have to be very careful here. We have to be very careful because it's very easy for spiritual pride to slip in such that where we convince ourselves that our knowledge of the Bible is so great that we fool ourselves into thinking that we're spiritually mature because, well, we just know so much. We constantly have to confront ourselves with the standards of Scripture as it's applied to our thoughts, as it's applied to our attitudes, as it's applied to our behavior, especially as seen in our relationships at home. Oh, everyone puts on their best show right now, right? Prim and proper. Y'all look good, by the way. Cleaned up real nice. But how are you at home? That's where the rubber meets the road. Is your thought life pure? Do I deal, ask myself, do I deal with my grumbling? Do I deal with my unbelieving? Do I deal with my unthankful spirit? Does my family see the fruit of the spirit in my, my relationship with them? If I put on a good front in front of you saying, Lord, Lord, but I don't practice his word in private and at home, I'm going to be shocked one day when I enter, when I slip from time into eternity and I hear the Lord Jesus Christ say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. We must each turn ourselves fully over to God. We must each lay ourselves bare before his word. For the gospel is God's message of salvation, that Jesus is king of all. And in that, God's word declares that it's God who writes the rules. It's God who sets the term. There is no way to salvation except through Jesus. This is a message for you. This is a message for me. And it's a message that God has delivered to us to achieve his glory and consequentially. It's a message to achieve our eternity of peace with Him. And when we encounter God's Word and we receive it like that fertile soil, and we respond to it as light, it's going to change us. You don't stay the same when you meet God. You don't. It will cause us to die to our ways. And when that kingdom seed finds fertile soil, we're made to see the light of the gospel. We're made, finally, children of God. And because of that, we can thank God about this in His Word. We can thank God that the light of God's Word illuminates the darkness. We can thank God that the Word of God exposes our deceitfulness and false teaching. And we can thank God that the Word of God enlightens the careful hearer. i got to say, 
this is what Jesus said, if this is what he's saying, if this is the effect that the word of God, if this is the effect that the Bible should have in my life and in your life, it's got two questions. Maybe you ask them too. The first question is for those here this morning who have yet to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. My friends, why do you hear this? And why do you continue to reject Christ? Why? Jesus said that eternal life is knowing Him. Knowing Him personally. With all the sin that that God's word brings out of the darkness into light, that you feel like are just weights strapped around you, bringing you down with all that you come under in a sense of conviction. Why do you reject him when his invitation to you is to be forgiven forever, to be set free? It's, It's at the cross upon which Jesus died that you find where God has accomplished the work of earning the forgiveness that you need. Why do you reject it? You have some other way around God? All that Jesus did and all that Jesus taught constantly point us to that cross upon which he died that you cannot get around. Why do you reject it? The other question I have is for the Christian in the room. And the word you need to hear right now is that you and I cannot pick, nor can we choose what we think are right and wrong. If it's God who sets the term, if it's God who sets the rules, then we know that God exposed, when God exposes something false that we're holding on to, if God exposes a sin that is present in our lives, God is inviting us to find a deeper comfort and deeper understanding of the gospel. And that comes about as we release that sin and cling and embrace the cross of our Lord. You know, whether we're Christian or not in this room, do you know what would solve each of our problems this morning? There's a solution to this. If you and I would actually start to obey the command of the Father who's in heaven that was given at the transfiguration of our Lord, you remember that scene, don't you? In that scene, Jesus ascends upon the top of a mountain and he was transfigured. So something about his countenance was changed. Uh, words could not even describe it. But his wardrobe became radiantly white. And then upon the scene come Moses and Elijah, the great prophets of the Old Testament, who had departed time centuries before that event. And they're there fellowshipping with our Lord. And it's an incredible scene to even try to imagine, let alone envision, or let alone witness as Peter did. You read that and you find that Peter is as overwhelmed as anyone. He approaches the Lord and says, hey, I need to build some things. We need to remember this day. And yet in all of that magnificence, if we are not careful, we might miss what is the most fantastic part of that entire event. The most fantastic part of that entire event was what the Father who is in heaven said that day. It was as if the skies parted and the heavens declared and through the voice of God, this is my beloved Son 
Listen to him. Listen to him. That's what the Father in heaven said. Listen to him. Oh, but we'll listen to anyone but Jesus, won't we? Last week, the weatherman said that a cold front's coming. Everybody listened to the weatherman, didn't you? H-E-B didn't have no rice and beans or toilet paper, did it? Because the weatherman said. Oh, but at the end of the book, it, Jesus declared, I'm coming quickly. And we just say, well, we'll take that under advisement. Come on. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I, I really have to repent? I'll think about it. Huh. Maybe we ought to listen to the Father. We ought to listen to our Lord. We ought to listen to the voice of King Jesus. We ought to ask ourselves right now, is he calling us to his light today? Is he calling? Because if he's calling, you need to know that you will find no peace in life and you will certainly not find any peace in what comes after until you surrender your all to the Prince of Peace, whose name is Jesus the Christ. And in every way, when light has been shown into the darkness of our condition, exposing what was once hidden, as we're careful to hear, my friends, we are obligated to do what we heard. You don't get to remain in neutral. As it was said by Brother Spivey when he served us as our interim, we don't get to fill the, the pew to the glory of God. Oh, you either accept and do what the Lord has said, or you reject it. And frankly, you leave yourself to be damned. I don't know any other way to say it. My friends, we need to allow God's word to have its full impact upon us so that we might delight to speak it to everyone. When we truly have been indwelled by the Spirit of God, we will find that God's word illuminates, we will find that God's word exposes, and we will find that God enlightens all who hear the word of God by the power of his spirit. What we find. The question to you is, I often leave to you is, what are you going to do? You're going to listen? You're going to do? Or are you going to say no thanks? Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.